Hello everyone and welcome to Witch Hassle. I am your constant host, Gendermar Prawn, and I am so pleased today to bring you my conversation with William A. Calvo Quiros about his new book from Oxford University Press, Undocumented Saints, The Politics of Migrating Devotions. It's a really interesting look at the evolution of fairly modern folk Catholicism on either side of the U.S.-Mexico border. We're talking about vernacular saints who are either people or based on people who lived and died within the last 120 or so years. You know, very far afield from, you know, someone who supposedly was uh, martyred under the Emperor Diocletian or something like that. You know, like folks you could actually look up in the newspaper. So that book is uh, coming out on the 25th of October. Uh, what I guess is sort of the Christmas of October. October 25th. Unless, of course, the Christmas of October is Halloween. It is September. Fall may, in fact, be creeping upon us. I am back at the second year of my grad program, and one of my classes this semester is apparently reading the DSM-5 all semester, and I am developing opinions that I am sure will involuntarily sprout into these episodes over the next few months. Is the DSM-5 trading in biological reductionism? It's not for me to say, perhaps, but the argument has been made. But enough about that, at least for now. Uh, there's, of course, no escape for me in the long term. Uh, the chat! William A. Calvo Quiros is Assistant Professor of American Culture and Latinx Studies at the University of Michigan. His current research investigates the relationship between state violence, imagination, religiosity, and spirituality along the U.S.-Mexico border region during the 20th century. His work studies the evolution and the politics of surveillance, and control around Latino religiosity, and he's also interested in monsters and sort of like what those say about society. It was a lovely chat, I'm glad to bring it to you. A little content trigger warning, at one point during the conversation, we don't go into like incredible detail about it, but just, you know, be forewarned in case this is something that might be triggering, we do bring up sexual assault and violence against a minor. But with that out of the way, here's my chat. With William A. Calvo Quiros, I do hope you enjoy it. So before like we even get into the specifics of this, you mentioned in the introduction that you were thinking of being a priest at some point. And the dirty secret. And like how does that like especially coming from that background, like what were you hoping to sort of achieve with this, this examination of folk saints as someone who like also like was sort of thinking of formally entering the Catholic church in that way, but also kind of moved away from it. <laughs> you know, it's so funny because I feel like it's one of those dirty secrets about my research that at one point I thought I want to be um, a religious, you know, consecrated person. Well, I think so. it was very simple. I grew up in Costa Rica. So it's a very high Catholic. At, at that point, it was 94%, 98%. Now, remember, those numbers are very complicated because the way that the church organized uh, membership is based on baptism. But baptism happened when you're a child, so that don't mean that you're active Catholic. So the numbers probably never completely match. But anyhow, so I grew up in Costa Rica. And for a long time, I thought that being a priest means that you will completely be dedicated to service a community, to help people, to social change. So that was very important. So I decided to go to seminary, but later on I found out that it was not for me. But I think the desire of work for social change, to have a, a social conscious for change society, to find to build a better world, it remained independently of my association with a Catholic church or not. In many ways, I'm, I'm what I call... Um, I mean, I'm Catholic, uh, but at many times I feel that I am part of what somebody's playing that being Catholic is like a train with many wagons, and there is different people in different times. So I'm a person probably in a wagon that is very liberal. So I represent a Catholic church that is extremely liberal. Sometimes I feel like I might really Catholic or I have become something else. 
But I feel that, as I said at the beginning, when I was in seminary at one point, I was taking a class on church history. And the faculty who are teaching the class say, you know, you can tell the history of the church, but all the different documents and the councils, you know, and the councils really respond to particular social movements, you know, so the Vatican second respond to changes in society and the reform we create over there. But he said, but we can also tell the story of the church, but the different charisms or the different uh, saints who emerge in different times because they also respond to particular times. And I all remember because St. Francis stories is that he go to a church, he find this lapidated chapel and they believe that uh, Jesus in the cross talked to him or you know, inspired him to believe that he heard the voice of Christ and he say, build the church, you know, but he thought, you know, that he need to rebuild the chapel, but then later on he understood that it was a larger project, you know, but I think that it, because he was responding to a particular period of time. So I was thinking, I think those two things, once my desire to do social change and the notion that saints, independent if you believe in them or not, they can become some kind of holder of people's expectation and desire for things to the point that in one of the saints, so at least in two of them, I go and study the letters that people left behind or the exporters that people left behind. And we find out that you can notice the big shift uh, that the society is experiencing, especially communities in need, by the thing that people ask. You know, I remember mm -hmm. that, uh, so for example, at one point, uh, maybe a saying it helped you to cross the border. So at that, um, in the 1980s, it was all about crossing the border. But by the 2000s, at the time that we live, crossing the border is not enough. You need to be able to survive within the United States and function within the United States. So they asked the saying, not only help me to cross the border, but also help me to be invisible or help me to have a good life there. You know, so people, uh, or for example, the mortgage crisis of the 2000s, of the first decade of 2000, before it reached middle-class America and it became an issue that we hear everywhere, communities of color were already asking for those miracles. Can I save my house? Before it became news. So it's so interesting because the objects, a lot of the research, for example, now that you're in, in New York, a lot of the research that, that do this kind of intersection between immigration and religion is happening, for example, in Italian communities. So mm -hmm. one of the big words that we have RC is about the immigrants, uh, Italian immigrants, and how the devotion that they have is not only transferred from Italy to the United States, but also it responds to very different needs. Like, how do you find a partner? I mean, how do you get, you know, you, having a family is important and everybody's very busy or people are sent to prison in a pro and disproportionate within. So you're going to need um, a spiritual, extraordinary divine help to survive in this life. So I think this is how. I never intended really to do a Catholic book. I had the impression that in many ways, uh, being Catholic is like being in the closet. You know, it's easy for you to come out and say, you know, I'm gay and everybody will support you in academia. But if you say that you're Catholic, you may have the other opposite of, uh, effect because people may feel that you may go very uh, conservative or that you're going to judge them or that you get an agenda. So uh, it's so interesting because the book developed little by little at the beginning, I really want to do a book about the imaginary. So include monsters, including the chupacabras and other monsters around the border. But little by little, it became clear that sainthood was the line who connect all these experiences. So all the saints are moved almost chronological one after the other. And then really almost as an excuse to talk about something bigger than just the saint itself. So the saint is how we get into the topic, but then we work about the construction of masculinity. Or we talk about the same, but it's really about the killing of women along the border, et cetera, et cetera. So, so I'm happy in that sense that in many ways also bring me peace of putting both together. My research as a Latino, as an immigrant, and also the fact that I'm Catholic. And hopefully it may help. I mean, my intention is not necessarily to talk to the Catholic Church, but I may help the Catholic Church to understand some of the pastoral needs to care for this community. For a lot of time, they think that it's only about translation. But connection is not enough, you know. Um, yeah. Especially some of those things are so complicated and so difficult for some people that they, they say, like, we need to give a human face to the people who follow these devotions. It's not as simple as say you're in or out of the Catholic Church because there is a huge array of participation at different levels. So I call them Catholic saints. Even the Catholic Church do not recognize some of them, but it's because they follow this kind of tradition or devotions and a part of this kind of pantheon or the devotion. Sorry, I, I had long answers. No, these are great. This is exactly this is exactly what I wanted. So like with these 
with these things, like you talk about this idea of the pastoral needs and mm -hmm. it's interesting because I think when people talk about like saints who are formally canonized in the church, mm -hmm. often they're, they're arranged around patronages of, you know, like professions, you know, this is mm -hmm. the patron saint of fishers, this is the patron saint of painters, but these folk saints seem to come out of something much, a much different sort of path. It seems to be much more a quarter, an answer to a question. No, I find, I mean, you, I think so you're right. What, what is interesting about saints is the, I mean, for all they use, they, I mean, there is two different things. One is the saint as the entity, as the person, you know, and the individual, and other thing is sainthood. So sainthood, it is, you know, this kind of virtuosity that individual have, and that one is common in all religions and in all cultural groups. You know, all cultures have recognized people who bar the virtue that they have is exceptional, you know, and you all want to imitate them. It may be because of their military achievement, or it may be because the way that they treat their neighbors or, or many different things. So, but virtuosity is, is common, even if we don't call sainthood, you know, so this kind of desires of humans to see other people, recognize the virtuosity and trying to imitate them. Now, the book is not necessarily about sainthood in the sense of this kind of virtuosity, because it really had to do with the same, the figure, the cultural entity of the same. Now, what is interesting is because first, there is way more saints you know, or, or holy people, the saints in the calendar. You know, we, we probably have met this amazing end or the per amazing person who works in the grocery store, who are just extraordinary people that you say, well, that person is a holy person, but they're not Catholic and they, you know, they, uh, so I don't talk about this kind of entity. I talk about the cultural things. So now, in terms of this thing, what is interesting, at least with the Catholic Church, that is true. Some of those things are so specialized, you know, San Anthony for finding things that you get lost, or San Anthony to find a partner, or such, you know, there is all saints for different things, for doctor, for doctor, you know, and that has been one of the big critiques that people who are not Catholic, especially after the reform, have against this kind of saint. But, but you're right, saints really respond to a particular question. I would say, of an individual or a community, to the point that I always had the impression that saints always happen after an act of violence or, an, or something that disrupts society because they go to respond to that one or extreme poverty or, or the need of helping people with AIDS or because immigrants are moving and nobody's taking care of them or there is need of hospital. So in that sense, they, they're very interesting. These saints that I have here are very much cultural entities. They are, they're not recognized by the Catholic Church, they're vernacular saints. Maybe one of them, one of them is the only one, but all of them are saints that are heroes in the local community, you know? So what I happen is that they all, few things, they all respond to the context where they located. So, you know, I teach a class on monsters and I say, a monster, the funeral the is something that we have created, that we are afraid of them, but then we create them. But the form, the body, and the, what they do respond to the time. So mm -hmm. we think about vampires, they're feeding in people, and they very much respond, you know, the fact of a, of a king who go down and, and feed on the poor is really about taxation, you know, and power. So a zombie responds, for example, to anxieties that we have today, the zombies of today, for example, allow migration and the inner city. And you know, and, and zombies uh, validate people have guns in home because you cannot trust the system, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so you can read about society and societies through the monster that we have. The same thing may happen with some of those saints. So when I study each one of them, I go first to the same, the location, and I try to explain the context of where it, it come to exist. All the cultural, the political, you know, I try not to be too deconstructive because a lot of time people believe in things that is just faith, you know, so it cannot be necessarily only explained with reason. But but I try to go a little bit about the context. And then I try to follow the evolution of the, of the devotion. So how the saying has changed meanings over time. All the saints that I study are saying who emerge in Mexico and have moved into the United States. So part of the big question is how, first, how religion or faith or devotion travels, you know? And second, how the experience of traveling or migration affect also the people and the devotion itself. So in the ways that the devotion of Father Toribio Romo have a particular context in Culiacán, or in, sorry, in, in Jalisco. 
But then when you move to the United States and going to Chicago or Tulsa or Detroit, it changed because the city is different and people needs are different. So that's something that for me is important to follow that. Now, religion and migration is not new. I mean, if you think at the emergence of the United States, very early in our understanding of our myth of what it means to be America, we have the story of the pilgrims who move, escaping religious persecution into the United States. So from the core of who we are as a nation, it had been this idea that religion freedom or religion persecution or religion migration have been at the center of who we are now. America is very unique and how we have approached religion, you know, the public space or a secular nation. But for the most part, I say that America is not really secular, despite the fire of the constitution, because many of the institutions that we have and the way that we think are very much defined by our religious values, you know? So even when we think about education, the judicial system, et cetera, et cetera, they value that one. So of course, we're trying to describe to a society who are open to everybody, but we need to work very hard to be sure that even the institutions that we have, as much as we love them, respond to many of those values. So, but I, I would say what is important for me about the saints is that they are like cultural vessels with the people putting meanings inside. Now, a few things, saints survive, I mean, fear of, a saint is a memory or is a, an idea. Yeah. In the sense that you associate something with the saint. The saint survives as long as the people reproduce stories about the miracles or the relation that they have with them. So that's why some saints go out of fashion and disappear from memory. And there is some saints that depends on the meanings who have been attached, they're able to adapt to different contexts. So the more general the saying may be, it's easier because people can add new meanings over time. You know, like if people see a movie and they don't understand, they, they give the meanings and meanings and meanings. Uh, the same thing happened with those things. Now, there is some, as they evolve over time, that's when they develop this kind of particular personalities, I would say. So this one is for dentists and this one is for people who work with the uh, eyeglasses or, or, or you know, this one for mental health or somebody who's for the internet. But that's something that come over time. And even those things, even as much as the church trying to regulate, because their sense live in people imagination and the people heart and their faith, they can change over time. So for example, one of the saints at one point was for soccer. You know, right. when the people is a devotion, and by the end, it's about immigration. And actually, this thing is very interesting to be wrong because when he was alive, he was totally anti-immigrant. You know, and I, and he became the same for people without documentation in the United States. So the meanings change because people change, needs change. So like, actually, I feel like just in case, like, I don't want to like lose anybody while we're while we're talking about this. Like, <laughs> yeah, like no, I'm, no. this is great stuff, and I love the like. Like getting into like the deeper meanings of these things, but just like, to like get down, like, get down, get like, down. To give someone like kind of like a in case anyone like it's like in terms of like material practicalities and stuff like uh -huh. that, you know, because like with a, an official saint, the process is fairly clear. Like the church comes in, there's an investigation, they say yes or no. There are there are people in positions and there of power. are miracles, and there are yeah. miracles that need to be performed. Right, but for like a folk saint or a vernacular saint, like. Is it enough just to be popular and dead? Like, what is it that actually pushes <laughs> it over into, into like, no, this is a saint, an unofficial saint, but a saint? Cooper, Cooper, do you want to be a saint? Do you want to figure out how to be a saint and people? <laughs> Not personally, but there is a project <laughs> I'm working on. This is, this is, this is for later, though. But, okay. So, well, a funeral, um, remember, uh, uh, saints need to be dead. You know, there is many different ways you can become a saint. You can become a saint because of, of virtuosity in your life. You know, so we think about, I don't know, even controversial, some very loving person like Teresa de Calcutta. Everybody recognized the work that they were doing. So that's one way. But the other one can be for marriagehood. You know, you, you may have done not necessarily a very extraordinary life, but at the last minute you defend faith. You know, so you or you save somebody at the last minute. So at the last minute, you did something extraordinary. You know, forgiveness, sacrifice, those things who are extraordinary. So the person may be, if the thing is for for the defense of faith or the Christian life, that can become saints. Now, vernacular saints are very interesting. First of all saints very much start in the same way. It start first. At the, at the community level, people need to recognize them as saints. So there is always a collective element. 
Other mm. people, is that enough that you think that you're very holy? People need to see you as a person who had done something good, you know? Yeah. Uh, that's very good probably for human relationships, you know? So uh, people need to recognize that you're a good person or that you had done something extraordinary. At the, at the traditional level, people will ask their parish to do something about because there is already something moving on. You know, and there is a very interesting book about making saints that talk about the disjunctions between what happened with the community recognize a saint but the structure of the church do not, or the other way around, where the church wants somebody to be a saint, but the community do not recognize it, or the family do not want to, you know? So it may be many different reasons why somebody may never become a saint. Also the politics, you know, the local. Now with a vernacular saint, what is interesting, a vernacular saint do not need the recognition of the church at all, because they live by themselves. It's really all remain at that level, who is not judicial, it's just at the community level. Now, what is interesting is that the church rely on the community to recognize the saints, but the vernacular do not need the church to recognize them, you know? So it may be, for example, that even the church be totally against them. You know, for example, in the case of the Santa Muerte, the Catholic, and we talk about church here and referring to the Catholic church right. for those who are listening. So the Catholic church say, you know, if you're Catholic, you cannot venerate the Santa Muerte because go against the, the, the dogma and the precept and the are of faith, you know, but some of these people do not have a problem to go to the Santa Muerte service on Saturday and then go to Mass on Sunday because people are, you know, fragmentalized, divide these things. Now, what is essential for a vernacular saint to survive, I think, is the capacity of them to do miracles because it is through miracles that they survive, you know. Now, in Catholic faith, a miracle is not granted by the saint, technically, a saying is like a third agent. That's putting it simply, you know, so Jesus or God is the one who grants the miracle, right. but the saying is the one who intercedes, but it's not the saying who do it. But that distinction is not clear for most people. You know, when I, when people lost something and they say, St. Anthony helped me to find it, they're not thinking, hey, St. Anthony, talk with God and tell him to help me, and then you tell me where it is. People don't go that, you know, that would yeah. be too complicated. That would be like a getting an app, you know? So you don't need the app. You want to go straight to the app. So, but what important thing is the saints survive because they're capable to resolve real problems. So it's interesting because saints can be totally imaginary. I mean, some of the saints that I study are not even real people because we don't know if they even existed. Right. And some of them we have pictures. But in, in, in people's minds, they're real because they resolve real problems. I mean, if you need to find a job, and you find a job, that's a real problem. If you need to pay your mortgage this month, or if you need to get money to pay for the school or for the gas, and you're able to do it. Now, you may say, and we all say, well, people may interpret that event as a miracle. That's a different topic. You know, how the miracle happened, if it's really a miracle, and the church have a, a, a codified process to figure out. But it's very difficult to figure out, I mean, how do you, I mean, a miracle is a random event that happened, okay? So, but I may say that um, meeting you, it can be a miracle, you know, right. because I meet a person and I became a friend. So I, it can be a miracle for me because I never had the contact and I never meet you and because things that may happen in the future. So it's so interesting because the interpretation of what is a miracle is really subjective. It's very personal, okay? But for example, if you go along the US-Mexico border, or in the United States uh, or in Mexico, and you see retablos. Retablos are the little pictures that people paint or they uh, commission somebody to paint about a miracle that happened. So it is always like that. You know, you're walking, crossing the street, a car hit you, but you survive. Okay? Uh, now, remember, miracles, uh, and they put in a little saying that is that one. Now, there is ma many reasons why the person may have survived. The speed of the car, the impact, the health, etc., etc. Yeah. But in people's minds, they survive something that they may not, you know, it's because of a miracle. And that's something that happened, you know, and the other, a few months, a month ago, I was in Italy, and they had the same retablet that we have here in Mexico or in the United States, because it's the same tradition. Now, what is interesting is that a miracle you can ask a miracle for yourself or you can ask a miracle for somebody else without the person even know. So I can say, you know, my mom can pray that William get hair back, you know, because I'm bold and it may happen. I, I doubt it. That will be a very huge miracle, you know, but she can ask for a miracle for me 
and I cannot even be aware that the thing happened. So saints are very interesting, but they survive only really because of the uh, of how well they are about making miracles. People recognize the miracles attached to that particular saint because you can you can say that it was another saint, and then also something that I call some kind of the marketing of the saint. Mm, you know, yeah. there is some saints that because where they where that event happened when they emerge, or because for example, we are living a period for global migration. I mean, it's not just the United States; everywhere, everybody's moving. Well, a saint who deals with migration is just right in the right time because it's everybody province, everybody concerned. You know, so it's very different than a saint that I have to help me to survive. I don't know a disease who disappear. It's not longer exists. You know, but some of those saints, for example, during the pandemic, it was very interesting because an old crucifix that it was popular in Rome during the plague suddenly resurrect because people start praying to the same, this particular, uh, because it was a different pandemic. It was not the same pandemic, but it was the same connection. So some of those saints, they can research again or disappear completely. So how important is something like, say, in terms of like the process, right, of, of, mm -hmm. of, of doing this, how important is something like, say, the Manda economy? Oh, yeah. Well, Manda, Manda is very interesting. Uh, Manda, for those who don't heard this term before, Manda is a term, I mean, term, like an ex-voto. That's really, yeah. and it's really a, a, a social contract that you do. So, for example, I say, I want to get, I want to get a good job. You know, I want to get a good job and I really need a job. So I may ask to San Francis, hey, Francis, I need a good job. So I will promise that I will do a rosary for five days if I get the job. So that social contract, you know, that spiritual connection that I say with that. So you need to have several components. You need to have a saint. You need to have a need. You need to be able to articulate the request and you do a payment. In a, you know, a pay, not necessarily a payment, but a promise of a payment. Now, it, it can work in two ways. You can say, I will do five rosaries in order to get this, or I will do five rosaries once I get this. Mm. Now, so that social contract um, is, is very, you know, it happens all the time. It's called Manda in Mexico. And I have this section that I call the Manda Economics because there is this kind of transaction that is happening. In the way that I need to recognize the same, capable to do it, but I also I commit myself to do it. And it's implied that if I don't do what I'm supposed to do in my and my miracle have been granted or my request have been granted, consequence can happen. Okay, so bad things can happen to you. So you need to once it can be withdrawn or or, or something worse can happen, or you know, now remember saints we cannot force saints to do miracles, you know, in the sense that you cannot say, Saint Cooper, you need to do this for me. And if you don't do it, you know, because the saint is dead, it's an spiritual being who has way more power than me. So there is always something that I say in this kind of man, the economy is that it's always implying a disparity of power, mm. you know, because we always recognize that the saint is way more powerful than me and the saint can decide to do it or not. Now, technically saints, are beyond the pityness of humans, you know? But some of these people, when they refer to a saint, they re, they attach to the saint many of the same qualities. And uh, you know, that that the saint can be vindicated or the, or the saint remember, or the saint will go after you, you don't do it. Now, technically, if the saint is a saint, and it's a, you know, they will not go into this pityness, <laughs> you know, like, well, you didn't pay me, I'm going after you. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's part of, that, of this kind of uh, economy. The saint do not need it, technically, as an spiritual being, but in, but in reality, they need it because if you grant a miracle, you will talk good about him to other people and that popularity of the saying, so he became more strong because they always, at the virtue disappears if people forget the saying. So the, con the Manda economy for me is this kind of uh, transaction that is constantly happening that is very much defined by the context where people are living. So if you live in a very precarious life, where death is common, you know, because I say many of these people are spending a slow death in the sense that by the time that they're born, they're already dead. It's just they don't die right away. It will take years because they have poverty, a poor access to health care. They're spending 
uh, police brutality. They don't, you know, et cetera, et cetera. They, have, they don't have a job or housing. So that will happen, but the social vulnerability created under them. So these people rely heavily in this manda economy that is defined by the economies of the precarious that they live in every day. So with this power imbalance, because I mean, you were mentioning also like, since mm-hmm. these are, are vernacular saints, they're created by the community mm-hmm. and this like necessity of having, you know, positive reviews, let's say, of, of you know, these <laughs> tales of, you know, like I asked. Uh, the, I jelly, asked relig- religious gelp. Yeah, 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 totally. I asked like Malverde for something. He did it. Five stars. <laughs> Does that work at all to sort of, equalize that power imbalance a little bit of like has there do you come across any examples of practices that are sort of like yes i would definitely do five rosaries if you get me this job saint francis but if you don't i'm telling everybody <laughs> i think so um you you're right in the point i think because it is true well Piero, that is the ultimate parent because he has the ultimate power. You know, he can strike this, make a disappear. God exists, he has, I mean, it's, ulti- it's all love, but it's also all power. So it's a complicated because we never, you know, and it's interesting because the issue of, of hell and the devil is, is this kind of trying to get access to the equality of power that is granted in disparity. You know, so that's very interesting because by nature, God is, do not have the same power that we, he has way more power. Now that there is all Christian explanation of God and death and you know and resurrection of the thing that equalize situation. But anyhow, and saints, so people start with the premise that they have less power than the saints. But it's true. There are many practices when you try to force the saints to do things for you, you know, that they may try to equalize. Now remember, for example, there is this practice of people to bury some some Saint Joseph. You know, especially realtors. So they may do a little hole and put it in Joseph in the property that they want to sell. And then after the realtor sells the property, they go and take, you know, so they, they say to the saint, I will keep you in the ground until you help me to sell the house. Now, this almost pagan and the church is totally against those practices. And technically, it's just a plastic figurine. And the, and St. And Joseph do not care about how many figurines are in the ground. But in my mind, I had the power to force the saint to do it. So in real life, you don't have the power, but really in this case, with an entity who is totally imaginary or spiritual, it is your perception of power. For example, St. Anthony, people will put St. Anthony upside down. And sometimes you can even buy a St. Anthony, for example, have a little magnet in his head. So you put it there and he stay there, you know? And then in other places, it's not enough to put him upside down and you put it, you know, you put it back in the right place and once he gave you a partner because St. Anthony is upside down in order to get a partner. But for example, people will take St. Anthony. St. Anthony has a little Jesus in his hand. So they will take St. Anthony and put it in a different place. So if you go to Spain, you will find the sculpture of St. Anthony with a little Jesus who has a little magnet. So you can move the Jesus as you want and put it in a, in a different place. So technically, it, it is really in the people's imagination that they can really afford the thing to do something. But in many ways, as you write, it gives some kind of, it equalize the situation. At least I have some kind of power. But it's true. One of the things that you can do is that you can give bad reviews to the same. And if the same is not granting you miracles, they just move on to another one. You know? I mean, the worst, the worst thing that you, I mean, clearly in our system, you give a bad review. But the, really the worst thing that a restaurant can get is the people just don't go. Be invisible is the worst thing that happened to a restaurant. But the same thing happened with the same. Uh, you can give them by reviews, you can, you know, but how far they can go. Uh, and people may say, well, you didn't get that miracle, not because of the same, but it's because you didn't do the manda. You didn't fulfill the requirements. So it can always backfire to you. The best way is that people just move to a different sense who are way more effective. For example, in case of the Santa Muerte, one of the arguments of some of the followers is like, well, the Santa Muerte is all powerful because all saints had died, and she is the saint of death. So she has the one who is way more powerful than Francis because St. Francis died. Now, remember, death is not even a person. It's just an, an idea. But I think there is always that tension, at least at the imaginary level, that we have enough power to constrain the saints to do what we want. Oh, hi. This is a little note to say that this is an abridged version of the episode, 
If you want to hear the full episode and other fun bonus content and support the show, head on over to patreon.com slash witchhassle. Thank you so much to all the folks who support the show on Patreon. It really is a world of kindness for me and incredibly appreciated. All right. Back to the rest of the interview. So it's interesting because like this idea of like, it's when you, when you talk about like, especially like with Santa Morte being someone who you might turn to to correct an injustice in your life, which sounds very much like a classic. Like I'm thinking immediately of like, I think it's just probably a coincidence that I happened to look upon the cover of a book last night that was uh, Hoodoo Justice Magic, right? So like there's a uh-huh. Southern American uh-huh. sort of tradition of that, that same uh-huh. basic premise. But like, this is reminding me now of like your work on, and I feel like we should at least get drilled down into one of the, like the work you actually do in this book on one of these things, just to give people a sense of like the actual trajectory that you're kind of tracing uh-huh. here. But with um someone like Juan uh, Soldado, Soldado uh-huh. and Olga Camacho, Camacho. Uh-huh. where you have basically have like Juan Soldado, this response to a perceived uh-huh. injustice, but in a way that actually sort of increases, I think the argument in the book is, and correct me, you know, this is, if I'm framing this incorrectly, but like, there's a sense that, that attempting to use him as a figurehead to address one injustice essentially creates or intensifies another injustice in a particular way. And now there is a move to sort of correct that injustice by beatifying Olga Camacho some hundred or so years later. But it is interesting, like when you're doing this work and you're trying to do, because like something that struck me about this book is that usually when we talk about the saints, it's someone like, you know, Saint Sebastian supposedly lived and died in the third century. So you're not going to find the trial records. You're not going to find the death certificate. It is only the legend with him. But with this, where you're working with the legend and then also these figures who actually lived and died um, except in the case of like Jesus Valverde, who seems to be a combination of two people. But like, you know, in the last hundred years or so, there's newspaper articles. There's all this stuff you can turn to. So like in, I guess, before we even get into all the, the implications of this, could you walk people through like just the basic premise? Who is Juan Soldado? Who is Olga Camacho? What's the, why, why bring them together at all? What is the story there? <laughs> Cooper, thank you very much for it. It's so nice to somebody read it, you know? I mean, I, I think so you're right. Humans are complicated. I mean, seriously, we are just complicated. I mean, we are complex in the way that, you know, and Juan Soda is a good example, you know? It start with a particular case, you know? Olga Camacho is an eight-year-old girl. The mother sent her to the grocery store or close, you know, a block or two blocks from the house to get milk and, and, and meat and, and, and Sunday afternoon. And then she didn't come back. The mother thought that the girl had gone with her sister, but the sister is in the house. So she ran to the grocery store, asked the people, and they said, no, yeah, she was here, but she already left. So she tried to trace, the girl didn't show up, called the father, let the father know. They come, start looking. Very soon, people in the neighborhood start looking. The girl had disappeared. They called the police. They start mobilizing. They close the streets. And then, then they later on, you know, the day after, find the body of the girl. The girl had been killed, uh, most likely also raped. They found the fingerprints and the footprints of somebody. There is very different suspect. The body is found in a, in a garage who was attached to a military uh, song. You know, uh, in t- this event happened in Tijuana in the 1930s. Now, within the different suspect, there is a soldier, Juan Castillo. Juan Castillo is a, a you know a, a, a lower rank soldier. Uh, they match the, the the what is called the fingerprints. It match the footprints. His girlfriend show up a few days after or the day after with a sweater that he was wearing that day with blood that is matched the girl. So there is there is clearly evidence. You know, when the people know that the suspect is in prison, they decide to attack the prison. They there is riots. The police, the military move the guy from that particular prison to another place. But however, the riots burned uh, burn the city hall, the registry, and the prison. You know, it creates riots. It's close the U.S.-Mexico border. The guy go into a court martial because the traditional uh, judicial system say we cannot tra- trial him because he's a soldier. So it moved them to the military court. The military court find him guilty take him to the cemetery the next day, and they give him the lay of the fuga. They say, we give you five minutes to run, and after five minutes, we go after you. If you escape, you're free. 
if we get you, we kill you. And he go and die. Right away, very soon, people start to claim that something was fishy about the trial. There is no court case. There is no transcript. The transcript for his court marshal disappeared. The person who was another, uh, the main individual in charge of the military, Colonel, uh, Colonel Contreras, it became one of the suspects. And people start arguing that he may have been the one, that maybe Juan Soldado had done it with somebody else. And things start to percolate to the point that within a year, people start saying he was a victim. You know, he was the victim. So people start to venerate him as as a, a skyco of the crime committed. And they start seeing in, in, in that kind of the disparity of power, the community identify who one, a person who is the other power have control over them, the state or the military. At the same time, we have the case of Olga. You know, Olga Camacho is the daughter of a guy who is the president of a union who is fighting with the state because the Cardinals have closed the casinos, who was the main source of labor in Tijuana at that time. So these people who went to the riots were the same people, you know, who had been protesting for the weeks before and had been sitting and have also occupied one of the buildings before. So, and this is the daughter of the guy who is leading the group. So there is all this political tension here. So now that we say that the Olga Camacho was targeted, or the Camachos were targeted because of the father's political involvement. But clearly after that, the father disappeared for all this kind of uh, political engagement. That the, 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 it's called the union is squashed. And then, but it's interesting because what we're talking about is that we're having two stories going on simultaneously. The story of the life of these individuals, including who was Juan. We found out later on that his dad his brother and his man had died within months, you know? So that thing was not even brought into the case, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not that we say that he was not responsible, but there is so many inconsistency that it funneled into these people believe that maybe he was not guilty. Now, at the same time, Olga Camacho is, is buried within, you know, 30 feet from Juan Castillo. And everybody, as they start going to Juan Castillo grave, they start throwing rocks to Olga to the point that the family is forced to take the body of Olga within a year and move into another cemetery. So for me, I mean, it's outrageous that the violence against the victim is perpetrated even after that. If you go now and you find her grave, there is no name. There is no way to identify her. She truly has become invisible. And Juan Castillo had become Juan Soldado, this kind of Juan the soldier, John the soldier, who had become for a long time a saint for people crossing the border without documentation. Now, few things. One, we talk about Tijuana, who is a border town. But it also the cemetery where Olga and Juan had been buried is within a mile. So, which means, and cemeteries tend to be outside the cities. So at that time, many people was crossing to the United States, were going through the road and going through the cemetery before they crossed. So this kind of a devotional shrine to Juan Soldado was one of the last things that they saw before they leave. So that devotion, like I would say, also in real estate, saints are all about location, location, location. This saint used to be right at the moment where people are crossing. So he became very popular. So my chapter, so once that I do, once and study, of course, the events that happen. But I also study the subtext of the events, the politics of Tijuana losing the jobs, people that struggle, the father involvement, even the history of, of, this, of the soldier coming from the South, the power disparity, the tension with the United States after the Tri Lupe Hidalgo. Mexico is still lingering with the fear that United States may occupy Baja California. At one point, United States want to take Baja California, and Tijuana was like a displaced to hold the place. So there is, this is the reason for the military presence, that the decay of Tijuana as a gamble at the same time that Las Vegas emerged in the United States. So in the way that we, we have a, a, a crime that is happening in multiple, you know, like a typical when we see a, a crime movie or murder case is a case that is a murder who is happening in many acts. So the killing of Olga is really happening in multiple acts in the way that is start way before by the family of Olga who is pushed out 
or Mexicali where they used to live because many political reasons, including American corporation, the Coral River Corporation, who hold big pieces of land and the Mexican government had taken away at one point and it forced this, uh, the, you know, the Camachos to live. And then I followed the story after how Juan Soldado emerged as a saint, including the popular representation of the saints, and I study all the different uh, letters and exvotes that people left behind. In that saying, I was very lucky because this is not a new saying that people had seen before, and there have been other scholars who did research a decade or two decades before me. And so we have a little bit of the data, so I'm able to compare the data of the letters of today with the data from 30 and 20 years ago, and we can see the patterns of changing between the requests. So we can see how people utilize the chapel as a, we can use it as a historical record of the despair of the needs of this community. So this is when we say people will ask for crossing the border at one point, but now it's not enough to cross the border. They really say, I want to be invisible, you know, because they understand that there is new technology needs, you know, that, that track them, how people are looking for jobs and including how people are looking for partners. So I follow this one and more recently, and it's caused the emergence of Olga Camacho at this kind of feminist, re, re, a new emerging as a new sense. When, and it was very much an experiment by artists. These artists decide to go around the city. They had designed, these women had designed these uh, postcards and with the image of Olga Camacho with the prayer. And they were living in different places, almost as a, as a way to try to create a devotion. And they will go into the bus station and into the buses and different places and the cemetery. And they will say, oh, my God, Olga had done this miracle for me. Did you hear about that one? And they will recitate and they will talk. Like at the process of creating, you know, you know, like it's always interesting. You can have natural rain, but then you can also uh, go with an airplane and put some things to make rain happen. I think so. They were trying to create this kind of bath for the devotion. Right. Now, it's not necessarily evolved into a full bloom. It would probably require a long time of exercise, but it really tells us that devotions can be also made up, you know? Right. Um, I mean, you mentioned in the book that something similar might have happened with one soldado where someone was sort of saying we should all put rocks on his grave to commemorate him. And then people were t misinterpreting that as a sign that he had answered some sort of prayer. Like, oh, my gosh, look at all the rocks on his grave, all the prayers he's answering or something like that. So it's interesting to see that get flipped around to kind of do you do you see this act of venerating Olga? as like, it's, it's clearly an act of like feminist reclamation, it seems like, but also do you see that as countering the one Soldado thing or is it just sort of like bringing her, bringing her up too? Mm -hmm. It's an interesting thing because I'm not sure if the intention of these people uh, increasing the devotion to Olga is at the, with the intention to squash one. I think that they may just wanna increase her and ha have her present, make her visible because they may understand that it's, it may be a very hard to disappear once or down. However, more recently, because of the work that we had done, and other, it had become obvious that once the, the, the complication of the case. But remember, like I would say, it's not about real facts. It's about what people believe. So even though people may see the evidence that Juan Soldado was involved in the crime, but it, it's irrelevant because they say, oh, he was framed. He was framed. He was framed by Contreras or he was framed by the system. Right. So that's a matter that you say, no, no, no. You know, and we see it even in the politics today, over and over that, no, the election didn't. No, it was framed. It was framed. So people need to, because humans are not rational. A lot of times people are emotional. And I think what Olga Camacho, New Devotion, is doing is work with the emotions of the people. Mm. Now, because the U.S.-Mexico border is a place heavy in the violence against women and women bodies. I mean, the, the, the killings of Juarez, we talk about thousands of women who have been killed and disappeared about the maquiladoras or the sweatshop. I mean, it has been consistent. We hear more about after the 1990s, but it had there. It's part of the result of, the, of all the infrastructure or exploitation and extraction that the, this disparity between power have created. So for them, is that new, the violence against women. So Olga Camacho framed, I mean, at least in, in my chapter, I say, one of the things that people say, like, oh, people went into this riot because it was an exceptional event. And I say, actually, we had Chicanas who have been doing research, you know, Castaneda, for example, and they say, 
actually there is an evidence of a long-term violence against women, indigenous women and, and Mexican women, all the way to the, the experience of Mexican or Spanish conquering of California. And violence against women have been utilized as a tool to control community. So he said, it's not new. So in this sense, I say, Olga Camacho case in the 1930s is connected to the long legacy of violence against women that is continuing even after the violence is because the body is, you know, it needs to be moved or, or, or it's turned into invisible. And women, you know, so we take Castaneda work in the colonial times, Olga Camacho in the 1930s, and the, and the women killing of women since the 1990s, and we have a clear trajectory of violence against women. So Olga Camacho worked within that line of violence. So the chapter is very an, a feminist analysis about how violence is perpetrated to women, but also how religion is is part of this kind of alchemy of violence. That's interesting because now I'm thinking about like it's funny because like Olga Camacho goes from Olga Camacho, the the, the literal victim of this crime to Saint Olga Camacho, the saint, whereas Juan Castillo, the actual sort of complicated man who may very well have actually done this crime, becomes the purely innocent Juan Soldado. I, I'm curious, because like we, we have sort of touched upon like the, this, the history of violence against women in, in, in the region, but also uh, questions of masculinity sort of came up a little bit here. But I am curious about how these saints will also map on to racial politics a little mm-hmm. bit. Because like you mentioned briefly that Juan Soldado or or... The, the sort of idea of Juan Soldado is that he came up from the South. And I think there's, mm-hmm. there, you, you point mm-hmm. to the book that there's sort of a racial component to mm-hmm. this idea. So, so yeah, yeah. So, so what is interesting, what you notice is that this transition from Juan Castillo to Juan Soldado is very important because it really is almost like a marketing, you know, that's the same transform itself. So even all the crimes and all the wrongdoings of Juan Castillo, get erased by the Juan Soldado. Even the image, Juan Castillo is a, is a, uh, is a soldier in the 20s, you know, a man, while Juan Soldado is a child. So even the, the physiognomy of the saint, the, the iconography of the saint had changed to signify this transformation, you know? Mm. And even in Jesus Valverde, there is also this very particular interesting case that we don't have a face for him because we don't know he even existed. But in the 1980s, you know, this family or this uh, person who is the caregiver of this uh, chapel decided to contract an artist to make the face of Jesus Malverde and choose the face of a very famous actor in, in Mexico that is also from the same city. So it's easy for the people to recognize the similarities. So it became a perfect tool. So one of the things that I talk is about also the politics of the transformation of the same for the marketing, you know, yeah. to make them survive. Now you ask me for race. What is interesting because race is at the beginning of the project and it moves along all the components. Few things, and it comes in different places. Once, for example, the project can't exist, I first encountered Toribio Romo, the first thing of this research in 2010, I would say, when I was here in Phoenix doing research on law writers, but I was visiting also my family and it was the SB 1070 the law, the, you know, against immigrants, especially people without documentation, and this created this kind of infrastructure. But it's in the context of Joe Apayo and Jeff Brewer. And I remember that I went to a service in South Phoenix, and when I was there, the interesting thing is that after the service, and it was a service to help people without documentation to grant custody of the children to somebody else in case that they had been deported. And at the end of the service, at the end of this meeting with the lawyers, and it was in a church because people think that it was safe and also because it was big, there was a little figure of uh, Toribio Romo and people was praying for him. So I asked my mom and he said, oh, this is Toribio Romo. And that's how the research started. Very political, very about racial tensions. But then race became a consistent element as general gender and power because, for example, in, in Toribio Romo, it's very interesting, Toribio Romo is from the region of Los Altos de Jalisco, where the people are very light-skinned. And Toribio, he was a, a white Mexican with light, you know, with, with light eyes. And part of the, of the legacies of the region is that they're very proud of their Spanish legacies, of being white and not being indigenous. So, for example, in the case of, of Toribio, uh, there is an interesting case because one of the uh, churches that I'm studying in Detroit commissioned 
an icon. And they commission icon to a nun, and she's very kind, very nice, and she decided to do the icon with a Byzantine style that it creates this kind of big forehead and dark skin. But it's part of the signifies, the semiotics of, of telling that the person is a whole individual of wisdom. But when the community saw that one, they saw an indigenous person, you know, and they say, wait, wait, wait a minute. He is not really Toribio Roman because you make it, you make it indigenous. And they fought again this image to the point that the church need to put it, the icon in one corner and print a big image of Toribio Romo so people can see it. So it is interesting because the, there is, re and we talk about internalized racism, you know, and the way pigmentocracy works, even within, there is a very interesting book called White, I think so is Ryan, I don't remember his name, that is talk about how religions icons also permeate racial notions in the way that Mary have always, or Jesus have always the light, but Mary Magdalene have curly, curly red hair and is already in the shadow. So this, all this notion, how do we represent race in the religious icon in the West? Now, so in Toribio Romo is there. In Toribio Romo is also with the racial tension in Tulsa within, and this is very common in many of the chapters that they have these Catholic parishes who used to be Italians or, 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 or Europeans, and then because these people have moved out of the Indian cities and the immigrants, Latino immigrants have come, the parish has become Latino. But there is a lot of racial tension for some of the previous residents who may still remain there a little bit of them because they see the transformation. So in many ways, Toribio Romo is all about the racial tensions of this demographic transformation in the United States. So I talk about that one. So I will say that race is, is something that is permeate, you know, all the devotions in different ways. I mean, even in La Santa Muerte, she had no flesh, it's only bones, yeah. but she's called La Niña Blanca, the white girl, the Blanquita, the little white one, you know? And there is this reference about light skin. And even with Juan and Olga, both images are very light skin, you know? So, and now, and it probably talk a lot about how we have been socialized to associate light and white and, and whiteness with purity and beauty and, and wisdom, you know, so those things percolate in that one. At the end of the chapter, the conclusion of the book, talk about one particular case. I start in Phoenix and I ended in Phoenix, and it's the case of how Phoenix, Arizona uh, moving from a territory into a statehood, mm -hmm. you know, it's also much by racial tensions. So the capital of the territory was Tucson, who was predominant Mexican, but then as Phoenix emerged as a white city and Latinos as pushed out of Phoenix back to, uh, to Tucson, so it became this Latino enclave, Tucson, the capital, and the new city who was emerging. By the time that it became a state, Phoenix will become the capital of the state, that it signifies you know, the, the supremacy or, or Anglos or whiteness within the state. Yeah. And it's something interesting because the Latino community here in Phoenix had built a church, you know, Sacred, Sacred Hearts. Sacred, yes, no, St. Mary's, St. Mary's. And they had purchased the, the land, they had put in the materials, and they built the church, yeah. these Latinos. Once they're done with that one, and, the, and, the, and it had become a, a state, the, the person who is responsible for the for the church said to them, oh, the Latinos are going to have mass in Spanish in the basement. And the Anglos are going to have mass in the main floor. No, and they're like, why? Yeah, I say, why? If we had, we built the church, we pay with our, we put it, the church together with our labor and we pay it. And he said, yeah, it is. Because it's that cheap, it's that, it's, it's, I mean, the, the changing for territory to a statehood is also much the transformation in the racial profile of the state in terms of power, not necessarily in terms of numbers. So these people get upset and they say, you know what? And they move and they buy another land, maybe two blocks away, and they build another church with Sacred Heart, who is a Spanish or, or a Latino center parish, Catholic parish. Nowadays, St. Mary's, you know, have one or two masses during the weekend, while at Sacred Heart has 12 masses. And you see the parking lot of one versus the parking lot of the other, it clearly has shifted. But it really signified that, and it was not only here, it happened also in Tucson, it happened also in, in, in the north of Arizona, Phoenix, oh, Arizona. 
So just to say that these kind of racial tensions happen. And I move into, for example, the sexual abuse cases. Yeah. We find out that of the 12 Latino, of the 12 parishes predominant Latino, or the 12 Latino parishes in Phoenix, 11 of them have priests who have been linked to sexual abuse somewhere else. And the bishop or the authorities in the church have moved them into a Latino neighborhood oh after gosh. that case has happened, which means the Latino uh, uh, children are more exposed than other children. And now remember, it's not only that most of the parishes are priests who have been linked to this case, but also we, many of those immigrant community are in the context of a relationship with the, with the priest in Mexico, you know, where the priests have a lot of power. You know, the priest oh, is not okay. only a religious priest, he's also an institution. You know, so you protect them, you side, you 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 are in their side. So remember, it is exposure, cultural relationship with the power of the priest, and it's at the same time that your Pio and, and Jen Brower are in power here. So there is these raids against the Latino community. So I say it can create a condition for extreme vulnerability of the children. Now we don't know how many of them were because also the cultural silence that we may find here that we didn't see in other places or in other communities. So what I'm trying to say is that it go back to the intersection of race. Why race? Because why the bishop thought, or the person who were in charge at that moment, may have not been the bishop, may have been somebody else, that moving somebody consistently over and over to a Latino, it means that they may thought that Latinos do not work the same that other people. You know, or they understand these people were signed. So it is, of course, about racial disparities and racial tension within the territory of religiosity. You know, so so that's how race is consistent in part of this devotion by the representation of the saints, by the relation of the community who follow this devotion, that the incapability of the institution to recognize the demographic. Now, remember, Latinos are transforming the religion landscape of the United States because it's not only that they're moving here in big numbers, so a lot of people are leaving the Catholic Church faith, you know that, but there is so many coming that we don't necessarily see those transformations. You know, uh, Phoenix uh, is the largest uh, religious community, growing religious Catholic religious community in the United States. But it's in, and we're getting a new bishop this this coming week. But what is interesting, and what is the first thing that he does? He's speaking Spanish when he comes to the community. So that number. The second thing that is interesting is that people are leaving. We get a lot of numbers that most of the growth of the Catholic Church in numbers is because of Latino presence. You know, so. And it's not only in the Catholic Church, it's happening in all the other devotions. You know, so there is a huge increase of Anglicans and Lutherans and Reformed that are evangelicals because of Latinos. So we think, what I say is that we clearly are experiencing a huge demographic transformation in America, for sure. But we also are experiencing a religious transformation in America. That landscape of religious diversity has increased and the diversity of the individuals performing religious genocide have also increased. So the religiosity that our grandparents experience, you know, and the relation with religiosity is very much defined by immigration in the United States today and in the next, you know, future. Yeah, like the idea that these saints are completely, I think, especially because people are so used to talking about saints as being kind of almost purely spiritual beings, but there's no way to divorce these figures <laughs> from these structures of, of, racial power, patriarchy, economic power, the whole mm -hmm. government oppression, so, the whole thing. Exactly. So that's the point in the book, is that we're talking about religious entities, but we're very much talking about people and the struggles and the context of these devotions. So as you say, we cannot disassociate the all the other structural humanity, you know, gender and race and class, you know, our migration and citizen status and sexual orientation, you know, and mobility and education access to how all these things, you know, affect how people relate with the religion experience or how they experience religiosity in their life. I think that might be a good place to to, to leave because we have been talking for about two hours and this has been, thank you for being so generous for your time. But before we no, leave, imagine. Uh, 
close out. Is there any sort of last thought you want to leave people with? Yes. Yeah, two things. Once the book is going to be released the next month, but more important is because of a grant that we were able to get to the Tommy, a T-O-M-E, we were able to, it's, it's produced by Oxford Press, it's called Undocumented Saints, The Politics of Migrating Devotions, and it will be out, you know, next month. But the important thing is that, of course, you can buy it online, you can pre-order, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But also, it will be available for free online because through this grant, we were able to pay the press and have it access to so people. So at one point, if maybe I would send you the link and people through the podcast, if they want, they can go directly and download the the digital version that it will be available for free for people. Thanks to this very generous grant. That is very uh, cool. To, I've to heard the book. That yeah, yeah. And the idea, and part of the idea was to, here in America, it's easy for us to buy a book and things like that, especially with the libraries and things. And, and we are very accustomed to do it. But because the book do a lot of work with the immigrant communities and transnational in Mexico, uh, we, we want to be sure that it gives the possibility to these people to have access to the book, that it would be, you know, 35 bucks for us is nothing, but for them it may be a lot. So especially immigrant communities, so the book will be free online, fully, and you know, for the individuals after it has been released by the press. That's really cool. That is that is fabulous. Um, it, was, yeah. it was a miracle of some saying, I don't know which one it was. <laughs> I mean that is that's the that's... same old capitalism, I guess. Oh gosh. Heaven for fun. Well that okay, that's a great <laughs> note to I I would love to share that link with people. Yeah, send that to me. Whenever it's available, and I will I will let the folks know. Um, but thank you so much for being on, and thank you so much for the great book. No, and thank you very much. I had such a great time. No, I'm so glad. <laughs> Bye, Cooper. Take care. Hope to see you in Michigan. Oh, uh, I will see you in New York one day. We'll have a drink or something. Yeah, it'd be great. Thank you so much to William A. Calvo Quiros. Really lovely chat and a really lovely book. Uh, I will have a link in the show notes to its dedicated website where you will be able to learn more about the book and eventually get the information for where you can get it for free once it comes out. Very fun stuff. Really interesting to think about the relationship between religiosity and community power. Communities seeking ways to meet their own needs and using this thing that, you know, especially in terms of Catholicism, can feel very top-down as a vehicle for their own goals and desires this has been witch hassle our theme music was performed by sebastian Befestam and recorded by edward lee thank you so much for listening good luck with the work ahead